Hello and welcome to the ALC Pan-African Radio's Talking Africa program. Talking Africa provides in-depth interviews with experts and other actors in the field of peace and security in Africa. Hello, I'm Desmond Davis. My guest today is Dr. Mutuma Rutiere, who is the director of the Center for Human Rights and Policy Studies in Nairobi, and is also the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance. Uh, Dr. Rutiere, you presented a report uh, at the recent conference here in Nairobi on uh, safe and inclusive cities uh, on violence in three East African neighborhoods. Can you tell us a bit about that report? Well, yes, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, and, and actually, this particular study is the product of a three-year research study and actually focused on four countries in Eastern Africa, um, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, and Kenya. And that report looks at um, community-level security governance. In other words, how we're trying to look at how communities organize themselves um, to actually um, improve security in their own neighborhoods. And the, that study is based on um, a recognition that there's also often been um, the assumption that um, in poor urban neighborhoods where uh, police, uh, public police are not present, um, these are basically zones that are uh, um, largely characterized by violence and conflicts and murders. Um, and therefore, we've seen a lot of literature, um, recommendations on need to increase police presence. Um, where at the same time, we know um, often police uh, interventions in these places is, is conflictual and uh, in many times uh, leads to um, confrontations and violations of um, the rights of the residents. Um, at the same time, um, this exclusive focus on uh, lengthening the arm of the public police and the reach of public police in this place also misses the point that these places are also quite organized, that those people are not sitting back and doing nothing about their own insecurity and violence. Um, so, so this study seeks to, to understand in the absence of public police, in spite of these deficiencies, in spite of the limit, limited reach of public police in these places, what do people do actually to make themselves um, secure? But, but why do we have this deficiency of policing in these poor neighborhoods? Well, that goes to the very um, uh, organization, the very structure, the very political economy of the states that we are discussing. It is true that policing in most African countries is class structured. Um, the poor are the last to be reached by essential services, including security. Um, when you look at the construction uh, the, and the imagination of security in many of these places, there's the assumption often is that the poor are the producers of insecurity. So often the mentality is to police the poor, not to secure them, but to police them. And that's the problem in most of the poor urban neighborhoods. Yeah, but you did say in the report that uh, the continued treatment of security as the preserve of the state should uh, no longer be the case. I mean, but definitely it's the, it's the state that has to provide security for all, not individuals. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, and, and this study in no way invalidates that, that argument that the state has the ultimate responsibility. What it does, what it seeks to address is 
often the criminalization of people's own efforts when they have been abandoned and left alone and they come up with their own self-help mechanisms of securing themselves. Often the assumption is that those are vigilante initiatives, they are criminal initiatives, and they are treated with more suspicion than the private efforts where of the more affluent areas where people actually hire uh, security guns. Yes, I see because I mean that's that, that's a major point because people say these people are vigilantes, they go out I mean seeking revenge rather than anything else. I mean so you really have to be very careful in terms of uh, neighborhood watch as it were. Absolutely, absolutely. And and, and one must uh, must uh, caution, uh, must uh, highlight and underscore those problems. Uh, vigilantes often uh, end up in in some cases becoming political uh, vigilantes also. Yes. They get misused. Um, but uh, uh, within that very narrow specified space, what we are saying is that particularly when it comes to the poor, um, there is a tendency to only look at the what is what is bad, but not to see that actually some of these efforts are aimed at uh, making do with very limited resources. And until we are able to actually address those deficiencies of the states, um, people people will 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 definitely take the space to organize themselves. So, I mean, in your research, how has the uh, this neighborhood sense of security been developing? Is it, is it going in the right direction? Well, it's a mixed bag. Um, in some countries, you have well-structured um, initiatives that um, uh, are very much also working in partnership with public police in places like Darazam and in some places like Rwanda. Of course, Rwanda is distinct because of its history. Um, in some other places, um, like Nairobi, you have a, a, a not a very close relationship. Um, I would say uh, one cannot say these are the ideal type forms of organization because they are not. They have problems. Sometimes they actually um, uh, uh, violate rights of the suspects that they arrest. Um, what they point to, what is interesting from all these studies, is actually the fact that there's a very um, dense and thick form of community organizing that takes place there that should be the subject of study um, by scholars and policymakers. Yeah, because even at, at this conference, the Safe and Inclusive uh, Cities Conference, I mean, uh, there was mention of the extrajudicial killings by uh, police in Nairobi, mm -hmm. in, the slum, in, in the well, the slums in Nairobi. So, what is your organization doing about that? Well, uh, we, this is the other th major focus. We always look at also the, um, the whole problem of violence, including violence by the police. In fact, we're in the process of putting together some work with other partners, like the International French Research Agency, that looks at comparative uh, work on police violence globally, because again, you realize that these forms of killings are not exclusive to a place like Nairobi. If you go to Brazil, yes. if you go to the US, if you go to exactly. Europe, you, you, you see a problem of this form of very form of strong, strong harm policing that, pun that punishes racial and ethnic minorities and the poor. And it, we need to intellectualize this violence and make uh, informed policy interventions and proposals. So that's something we really are also looking well, at. Well, I mean, that has been a major problem in trying to uh, reorientate police forces, say, in the West. Once you try to do that, they say it's political correctness. 
Yeah, well, you see, the, 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 the critiques and the criticism against political correctness, um, um, if I understood you correctly. Um, yes, I mean, to, yes. To, to, to understand, for yes. them to understand the yes. specific cases of ah. ethnic minorities, poor and yes. water view. Yes, yes. You know, yeah. yes absolutely. And, and know that one of the major problems is the, the, the people who often, whose voices are at hand in most of the policy discourses, are not the, the poor, not the racial and ethnic minorities. And therefore, it's very easy for those who have uh, the access to platforms to say, oh, this is political correctness, that this is actually um, a, a restricting police services. But the truth of the matter is that in all the places in the world, um, we see the poor and the minorities facing a, um, a lot of racial and hostility and violence from police and security services globally. So, so, so you believe that this, uh, this project, the Safe and Inclusive Cities, which is focusing on the global south, is a step in the right direction? Yes, I think any forms of studies that actually seek to generate better understanding, better knowledge of um, uh, the governance of security, the governance of cities, they contribute to a better understanding of society. So absolutely, you know, the global part of the major weakness in global south is that we don't generate enough knowledge to actually inform policy. Yes, so I mean, you, you believe that this will take things forward, I mean... What's the next step with the presentation of these reports? Well, you know, the, 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 the influence that research often has in policy is always a subject of ongoing discussions. And, and, and it's very difficult to say that one study is actually going to tilt the balance of transformed uh, situations. But I think the fact that they provide a basis to have this kind of informed conversations is very, very important. And it's very important that also we bring policymakers into these conversations. So what do you think about these gated communities in cities like Nairobi, Dar es Salaam, and even Accra and Ghana? Are they really safe? Well, look, um, there are different schools of thought in, with regard to gated communities. Um, I think gated communities just represent the, uh, the political, economic uh, situation as it is. The, those who have the resources will do what they can to make themselves secure. Those who don't have the resources to uh, close themselves up in gated communities will resort to other means. Mm -hmm. So I think gated communities should be seen as a critique of the nature of the state indeed, that we have. Indeed, indeed. Yes. Well, actually, poverty and poor services in urban areas obviously uh, generate uh, uh, violence or whatever. Shouldn't governments in Africa realize that this is the problem that they should reduce poverty and uh, provide services for people to for them to have a better standard of living and that will reduce the violence won't it absolutely and i think uh, you know on the positive side you see now a lot of focus and emphasis on looking at the linkages between um, inequality exclusion and violence and you know the the the, um, the sdgs for instance have made that very explicit um, i think a part of the problem in Africa, but also globally, is the fact that um, often the poor haven't counted much. Uh, in many cases, they are also not counted by policies. Um, and, and when you look at the policy um, environment, a lot of the weakness is also that we don't collect good statistics, we don't collect good data, which can actually start to inform these policies. It's because I was about to say, I mean, because these people who do all the research, they don't come from that background. So do they really understand the, uh, the problems? 
Well, it, I would say it's a struggle. Um, I would say one of the biggest challenges that I've found even in the work that I do as a UN Special Rapporteur is the fact that um, we don't have good data. We don't have good data. Even in developed countries, we actually don't have good data that shows these forms of linkages. And often, therefore, it is very easy for those who want to engage in culture wars to say, oh, economy, poverty has got nothing to do with it. It's just a product of broken cultures or cultures that are not civilized enough. And that's why it's very important to actually do scientific, good scholarly studies to challenge these forms of uh, arguments. You are listening to Talking Africa on the ALC Pan-African Radio. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, my guest today is Dr. Utuma Rutera, who is the director of the Center for Human Rights and Policy Studies in Nairobi, and also the, uh, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia, and Related Intolerance. Yes, indeed, I'm sure it's a very tough job for you this day as a Special Rapporteur, because it seems to see the world has gone upside down, everything has gone upside down in hate speech all over the place, xenophobia. How are you coping with all of these changes? Yes, thank you. I would say that uh, we, we really, uh, in a sense, it's very easy when you look at what is happening globally to um, become uh, cynical and to say that we are going back in spite of the progress we've made in the last almost 100 years, mm-hmm. in spite of all the norms and the institutions and the international global architecture to address human rights. Um, so there is a lot to be worried about. Um, the countries are building wars all over, countries are restricting and criminalizing migration. Um, racism is uh, become much more open in several places. Racism is actually running and winning elections. Um, so there's a lot to be um, dis- disappointed and cynical about. But at the same time, there's actually a lot to be optimistic about because in all these places, what you see is citizens mobilizing. It's a lot of pushback. In many places, we've seen extremist parties actually losing elections. Um, so there's a, there's a robust debate even in those places where one looks and says it's depressing. Uh, the bright side is that there's a very robust deba- debate and pushback. Yes, because I believe you've done some work in uh, racism in football, most in Europe. How is that working out? Yes. Um, yes, I mean... Uh, Places, uh, uh, um, uh, um, arenas or platforms such as sports really should be celebrating diversity and um, the success of human abilities. Um, so it's, it's, it's unfortunate that there's this persistence of uh, racial towns and hostility. We've seen bananas being thrown at black players. We have seen people chanting um, uh, racist songs and also even calling, uh, even swastikas actually in some places. Um, We're seeing some good developments in terms of what football associations are doing. I don't think they are doing enough. There's a lot that needs to be done by football associations in terms of uh, punishment, in terms of penalties for those uh, fans as well as clubs that really don't take stern action against those people who uh, make yeah, such statements. Uh, uh, that's an interesting point because I think it's more to do with the tribal nature of football. Mm. When they're in the stadium and, and their own uh, uh, sections, mm. they behave mm. like the rest of the tribe. But once mm. they leave the, the, the stadium, I don't mm. think they carry that sort of thing into society, do they? 
Yeah, well, there has been those arguments, and I think it's really got nothing to do, very little to do with um, the very competitive nature of sports. I think um, there is. It's very important that no matter how competitive sports is, is be conducted within the rules and limits of as acceptable discourses. There is certainly no room for racial terms or racial hostility or racial insults. Um, there are many, many endless kind of songs or chants that football fans can actually make without exactly. racializing them. So um, I think it actually speaks to a broader acceptance and normalization of racism and, uh, and latent racism. That, But football allows people to have that space to express those racial yes. feelings. Yeah, because that's quite disappointing, really, what you said. Because, I mean... In the 70s and 80s, we had this problem. Yes. It seemed to have disappeared in, in the 90s, but now it's, it's yes. rarely its head again. Is that down to nationalism or, or what politicians are actually saying? I think it's, it's really down to politicians. It's also, we've seen increasingly for in places like Europe, a continuing hostility, delegitimization of notions of multiculturalism, for instance. Political leaders who say, we are not multicultural. We don't accept. We don't accept multiculturalism. We don't accept uh, that we are a diverse society. Everyone must assimilate. Um, and unfortunately, the more progressive uh, political actors haven't pushed back enough. Uh, when you see the swing to the right in many of the places in the West, is part of the success is because the progressive uh, political actors have not pushed back enough and has have ceded space for the extremists. To the extremists. Well, I mean. Others can argue differently that uh, migrants were not initially uh, uh, welcome, so they were allowed to settle in their own uh, neighborhoods. Now things have changed. And, um, and of course, the left-wingers supported that sort of uh, uh, neighborhood mm. cultural situation, whereas the right-wingers didn't want it. So I think that has been the problem. You know, They want them to integrate now, but over the years, yes. they've been left to do their own things. Precisely. And, 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 you know, one can look at different countries that have done a better job of um, integrating, integrating yes. and turning migrants into citizens. And, you know, the examples, I'm not going to name countries, and the other countries that haven't done well at all uh, and have even re rejected the notion that anyone is different. Um, and, and this has been an ongoing debate from the 60s, from the 70s. If you go back, many of the social commentators have warned of the, the potential for this violence if, if countries actually don't take this, um, this, the, this very seriously. Um, look, the other, the other thing is that now we have more migrants crossing. Yes. We have more information about different people like, than before. We know who is moving, and that, of course, contributes to this very explosive mix of racism and xenophobia and nationalism. It's a niche of the world we are living now because we know more about each other than before. But in certain parts of Africa, there's a suggestion of xenophobia and also ethnic division. So these are also fueling uh, uh, the racism in Europe and America when they see that black people themselves are fighting each other. So why should we uh, treat them uh, better? 
Absolutely. And I think um, the, the, this, sometimes the assumption that the problems of racism are not applicable to Africa, and indeed they are. The forms of discrimination you see with the color differences in racism that manifests itself in terms of color differentiation yes. are the same that we see in Africa in terms of exclusion of ethnic groups, um, discrimination against ethnic groups, xenophobic hostility to migrants. These are the same, same forms of hostility. And really the responsibility is that of all these countries and African countries to actually address these problems even within their own countries. But don't you think it's very, very disappointing to see the xenophobic attacks in, in South Africa against Africans whose countries actually made significant uh, contributions towards the uh, uh, bringing apartheid to an end? I think it's uh, disappointing to see xenophobic attacks in many other countries. I think they are not exclusive to one country. They might uh, uh, be, uh, you might have higher scale in one country, but I know you know you have a xenophobic uh, discrimination in many countries across Africa, uh, within um, countries within the uh, even within East Africa, within Southern Africa, within Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, migrants on transit passing through parts of North Africa also, yes. they, are, they, are, they face the same kind of xenophobic hostility. So, so it is a problem that actually requires uh, a solution that is, is, is not just solutions from only one country. And I think the African Union, for instance, is, a one, is a, an excellent opportunity to think of the solutions for this kind of migration, because actually most African migrants are within Africa. Yes, course, and, yes. And, and, and in some of those places, some places they are very well integrated, um, and we should not lose f sight of that. But in some places, they face hostility that they should not. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, I mean during the Rwandan genocide, East African countries took millions of uh, uh, refugees in no time at all, yes. and they and they settled. So these are the examples yes. we might even try to give to uh, Europe and America to see how migrants have settled uh, in. Uh, African countries. Absolutely, and uh, migration is a fact of human history. Everyone is a migrant. Everyone came from somewhere. Uh, trying to stop migration is like trying to stop the march of history and time. It's not possible. How we regulate that migration, how we actually address that migration is the issue. And right now, more than 100 years before, we have the tools in terms of uh, international norms, international agreements, good policies, which is why also the ongoing discussion on a global compact on migration within the, under the auspice of the United Nations is a very good opportunity. Yes, because I mean, with, with, with Africans itself, those who are going to Europe are very young people. Don't you think that the uh, governments in Africa have failed them? Because the African Union itself has all these frameworks for, for social youth development and whatever, but nothing seems to have happened. Um, I think it, it's easy to be pessimistic about it. I think there are also um, a need to also to look at what is often working in many of the places um, because that's the only way we start building on the solutions. Um, and I think uh, it's also remarkable that in many of these African countries, in spite of their levels of poverty, in, in, uh, in spite of their levels of ethnic, ethnic diversity, you actually don't have um, open violence and warfare in all these countries. So something, something interesting happens in those places. 
um, this excellent work done by mayors for distance in many cities to actually ensure that they accommodate young people, um, give um, the, the means for young people who are migrants and or are refugees to actually find um, a, a, uh, employment in those places. So there are good examples that Africa itself needs to build upon. Indeed, coming back to your work in Rwanda, because Rwanda came from a very violent uh, genocide just 20 years ago. How have they been able to reconcile uh, with, with that uh, situation? Well, um, I've not done any, any work particularly on the question of reconciliation specifically, but I think um, reconciliation in a place like Rwanda is an ongoing project. Um, I don't think it's complete. Um, I think part of the remarkable success of Rwanda is actually rebuilding a state that had collapsed. And so there are some very interesting lessons on state rebuilding uh, that from a scholarly point of view now speaking as an academic and not as a UN um, expert, there are very interesting examples in rebuilding states. Um, and and uh, it's not a perfect state, but states are not born perfect. They are born in perfections and they are improved upon um, brick by brick. Dr. Mutuma Rutero, Director of the Center for Human Rights and Policy Studies in Nairobi and United Nations Special Rapporteur on Contemporary Forms of Racism, Racial Discrimination, Xenophobia and Related Intolerance. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Talking Africa and ALC Pan-African Radio. For these and other programs, please visit our website at alcpanafricanradio.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Radio ALC and on Facebook at African Leadership Center. For feedback on this and other programs, please send an email to info at africanradio.com.